0: Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guests today on The Art of Range are Cooper and Chase Hibbard. Managers of the Sieben Livestock Company near Cascade, Montana, Cooper and Chase. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, good to be here. I'm interested in the name of, in the, name of the ranch. Uh, I'm aware because I've had some German in high school, and my grandmother was full German. That Seben is the uh, German word for seven, and I know Henry Sieben's name was Seben. So, uh, but I but I'm more interested in the in the name Livestock Company. That seems to be a uh, a retention of the older usage of the word live stock, meaning, you know, stock as in capital or movable property, which is alive. You don't very often see it separated like that anymore. Do you know where, is that a retention of of that sense of the term or is it not quite so?
1: It's been a real (laughs) battle. Um, was every time we write that or say that, that word, um, Everyone wants to so crunch it into together. one word, mm-hmm. and it it is Seven Live Stock Company, mm-hmm. which is goes back to the original incorporation back in the early nineteen hundreds. Mm-hmm. So, that was that was that was the name of this of this place from the beginning, and and we've 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 held on to that tradition. Yeah, we haven't succumbed to uh, to, to the new English, so to speak.
0: Yeah, yeah, that old English. I think the the original term livestock goes back to about the 1500s, 1600s mm-hmm. to refer to stock, yeah. which is movable. Well, what's the, I mentioned Henry Sieben just because i read a couple articles about the ranch, but what is a, a brief history of the Sieben Livestock Company?
1: Um, yes, this has to go back to uh, Henry Sieben walking into Montana uh, at age 17. Uh, an orphan um, who came, emigrated from Germany as a small child. And uh, his mother got sick and died on the ocean voyage. And so the father, um, with seven children and and no wife, initially settled in Chicago. And soon thereafter, moved down to a, a German settlement called Dutch Bottom, which is now Geneseo, Illinois, on the Rock River mm. in uh, in Illinois, southwest of Chicago. Mm. And uh, they were there for several years, and those kids were all farmed out to different families for the most part. And uh, at age 17, Henry Seben and his older brother Leonard, who was 19, teamed up with two cousins, the Arnett brothers, and uh, secured a small wagon and I think an oxen to pull it.
2: one or, one or two they had something to pull.
1: It. I think yeah. they had one one of whatever <laughs> it was and I think it was an oxen yeah. and uh, headed out headed, somehow got to the Oregon Trail from Geneseo, came out on the Oregon Trail and were refused passage at Fort Laramie, Wyoming hmm. uh, due to Indian problems further ahead. And they were lucky enough to secure passage um, with John Bozeman on one of his two pack trains, wagon trains, into Montana um, through hostile Indian territory at the time. Um, so came into Montana in 1864, and uh, Henry Seaborn and uh, I think he and his brother split up and went their own ways shortly thereafter, but. Henry uh, hunted and trapped for a couple of years for subsistence and um, eventually got a job freighting and ultimately freighted uh, to the gold camps from Fort Benton, which was the the terminus of the steamships coming up the Missouri, Hmm. and from the railhead at Corinne, Utah. Did that for a number of years until uh, one fall had saved up enough money to Buy some worn-out oxen at the end of the freighting season, turned them out into on the open range into one of Montana's uh, open winters, which we have from time to time. Um, they they prospered over the winter, and he sold them the next spring at a handsome profit. From that point forward, he decided that there was more future in livestock and livestock speculation than there was in freighting. Sold what he'd accumulated as accumulated as a freight outfit and uh, began speculating in livestock you know they would he and his brother would uh, go down to uh, Bear Valley Utah which is um there was there was a, a kind of a rest stop there for uh settlers coming west on the Oregon Trail and and frequently people were dispirited by the time they got far on the, that far on the trail so they purchase livestock there uh, for very reasonable cost and trail it into Montana. So um, that's how he got his start with livestock. And um, he started actually in this, this area, he started um, north of Helena and the Chestnut Valley, which is right here on the Missouri River near Cascade. And um, often would turn cattle out that he'd accumulated, um, and wintered down in the Chestnut Valley. He'd, he'd turn them loose, and then the following fall would find them thirty miles away at a place called Hole in the Wall. He said to himself at the time that if he ever had enough means to buy a ranch, that's where it would be. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, the Cannon Sheep and Cattle Company, which came up for, per, for to, came up for sale in 1907. He was able to purchase and it was the hole in the wall. Hmm. So he wow. was one of those guys that got to fulfill his his dream. Yeah. Um, but in the meantime, it was interesting because he um he was one of the partakers of, of the free range and uh left the chestnut valley um thinking it was overgrazed in the eighteen eighties and uh, moved to central Montana, north central Montana secured water rights on Flat Willow Creek near Winnet, and uh, ran on the open range there for a number of years uh, in a huge association with Mm -hmm. lots of other stockmen. And uh, Charlie Russell in those days, the famous Western artist, famous Montana Western artist, was a night rider in that association Mm -hmm. where Henry Sieben Mm -hmm. uh, had his cattle. And so about this time, the the cattle drives were picking up from Texas and uh, the XIT and several of these large companies were bringing tens of thousands of cattle in uh, from Texas frequently. And interestingly enough, many of those ventures were were foreign money. They were Scottish investors, British investors, and uh, the profits that were made were obscene. They were 15 and 20% payback to investors. So there was big, big money in, in, yeah. in range cattle. So, they, they, <clears throat> of course, they, they continued to come in increasing numbers. If you've read the book Centennial, it's a, it's a good depiction of, of, of that, that period of time. But they came in in huge numbers, and pretty soon we had a tragedy of the commons. Um, more and more cattle, more and more competition for less and less grass. So Henry even moved again. He moved out north of Culbertson where some land opened up and uh, ranched there for a number of years, Uh, again on the open range, secured water rights, and uh, ran on the open range. But by then, he was seeing the handwriting on the wall. Um, Homesteading was becoming prevalent. A lot of the river bottoms were being gobbled up. Um, We had that horrible winter, which is memorialized by Charlie Russell's last of the 10,000 painting it was in the 1860s. No, when was that? 1887. 1887. And a lot of people went belly up um, as a result of that winter. Um, he was very frugal. He was able to buy up a bunch of herds. and uh, But saw the handwriting on the wall and determined that um, he was, he was going to have to, to purchase a land base to stay in this business. He was able to purchase first um, the Mitchell Place at the mouth of the Wolf Creek Canyon in the late 1800s, which became the Seabin Ranch Company. And in 1907, was able to purchase Seabin Livestock Company at the hole in the wall, southeast of Cascade. Hmm. Um, so there are two Seabins now, Seabin Ranch, which is owned by one branch of the family, right. and Seabin Livestock, which is owned by this branch.
0: Right. Yeah, I saw the name of the other Seabin Ranch, I think, in the American Sheep Industry article from a number of years ago. It mentioned both of them. Yeah, that, that is a fascinating history. Uh, I have tremendous respect for people whose livelihoods depend on making good decisions, working with nature. And uh, there have been quite a few people, including some environmentalist turned ranching advocates in the last, you know, several decades, that have observed that ranching is now really the only livelihood that that really represents uh, an interdependence between man and nature. And I I think this is something that's pretty significant that feels like hasn't really been, you know, told all that well a story that hasn't been told all that well to the general public. You know my my own motivation as a range extension specialist, somebody who's supposed to have one foot in academia and one foot in the real world, is is that if we can do that well, namely, you know, producing food and fiber in the same space, that we can produce all of these other ecosystem goods and services. That we have some societal obligation to do that well. And of course, the million dollar question is. What does it look like to do it well, or or how do we do that? And and I think, um, you know, maybe more subjectively that ranching done well is is beautiful, which is something that maybe has gotten lost a bit in our age of pragmatism. I think people can see that uh, doing that well is object- objectively good in a world where things things seem to be increasingly relative and subjective uh, as people are less and less connected to real non-virtual things. Uh, So one of my questions is, you know, what motivates you all to keep ranching? We don't have profit margins like what they, you know, the rate of return on investment today is not 15 to 20% in ranching. And most people that have, you know, a large ranch property and some uh, live stock could very easily... You know, sell that for what it's worth, put it on the stock market, and make more money than the, you know, the two to five percent rate of return that's in ranching. Now, what motivates you all to keep ranching? I think Cooper is going to have a very interesting
1: perspective on this. Um, I don't think I know that he does. And uh, I would like to kick this off, however, and tell the story about the last generational turnover which I think uh, addresses several of the questions that that you have posed and that maybe will set the tone for what I I presume that you will have to say um, but um, as you know um, well our audience has no way of knowing <laughs> at this point but um, my generation is fourth generation, mm-hmm. and Cooper's is fifth generation, and we're working real hard on the sixth generation already. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the tallest one's only about four feet tall right yeah. now, so we're, yeah. we're, we're, we're starting at, at an early age. But um, we had a real turning point in our family when um, my father, Cooper's grandfather, um, flew his Piper Cub into a power line on the ranch. In 1976, and was killed. Um, I was um, at the time I was um, had graduated from college and had about six years into a career in banking on, on Montgomery Street in San Francisco. And um, when we heard the, no- the news, um, came home immediately. My two younger brothers, um, who were twins three years younger than I, were still pursuing academic pursuits and i was following a professional career at that time we all came home immediately and uh, of course pow out about you know what what's the future of this ranch going to be and um interestingly interestingly enough nearly all of our trusted family advisors by that i mean our our, the professionals, uh, our, fa- our family and ranch lawyer who'd been advising us for years, our accountant, professional accountant, who had been advising us for years, and, and um, close friends of the family, almost without exception, advised us to sell the ranch. Really? And that, to a large yeah. degree, included... M- Scott, and my brother Scott and my mother. Yeah. Um, we, you know, we'd been in the sheep business and we transitioned to mostly to cattle to, um, maintain some sheep. And, you know, we, we'd we had several years of not great prosperity on the ranch. And, and I was just starting a, a career. I just um, got married, married a California girl. Um, two brothers were still pursuing their academics. You know, I was 28 at the time and no one felt that any of us was, none of the professionals felt that any of us were prepared to come in and take this over, particularly with the recent history. And so... My two brothers and, and I, Scott Witt and myself, um, spent lots of time pow-wowing and listening to all the advice. And at the end of the day, we came to the conclusion that this ranch was more important to us than anything else we were doing or had aspirations to do. That um, it was so deeply ingrained within us. To take this ranch away would be akin to to losing a limb, losing a leg, losing an arm. Um, We said, I don't care what the professionals are telling us. We cannot let this ranch go. We are going to do what it takes to make this ranch work. And we're going to keep this ranch in the family. Um, I quit my job in San Francisco. I, I came back to the ranch. We piled out and decided who was going to do this. I was the oldest. I was out in the professional world. Those guys were still in academics. They we were they were younger. That so we decided you know who was going to come and do it, what our respective roles would be. Mm-hmm. We had plenty of examples of too many fingers in the in the pot and ending up in disaster. So we decided how we were going to do this and came up with our management structure and. Um, so, and then, you know, not a bit sorry, none of us are. I mean, it's uh, it's been it's been a wild ride, but the ranch is, is in very firm ground right now. Um, we've got money in the bank and um, we operate without borrowing any money. Mm-hmm. And um, we've, we've been a successful operation, um, but it's just, you know, it, the whole Moral of this story is that it, it became so clear how important this ranch was to us that we would sacrifice anything. We would sacrifice anything to keep this ranch going. Mm-hmm. And we haven't regretted that decision to this day.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So to set the stage, Cooper, you're the guy that's uh, is devoting your life to this. And, and um, you're coming to this with some very strong feelings as
0: well. I just to jump in quickly, I, that's an interesting perspective because you there are some people who would look at a place like the Stephen Livestock Company and say, Well, if I was that big, it'd be easy. You know, I could I could exercise good stewardship, I could be profitable if I had that much land. And I'm hearing that it's not that's not quite the way things work. Big ranch, big problems, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, Major
1: it was, risks. yeah, it was, yeah, we it was, um. Yeah, the the magnitude was, I mean, that's that's why we were advised to sell it. I mean, right. not not only our lack of, of experience, um, lack of of uh, uh, specific knowledge to it, other than growing up, here, spending every summer of our life from the day we got out of school till the day before we went back. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of, of our love for this place was instilled by the fact that that. Um, Dad turned us over to the ranch foreman with specific instructions that that um, do not cut these kids any slack. You treat them exactly the way that you treat the other men on the ranch. Just because they're the owners' kids doesn't give them any privileges. Mm -hmm. So getting a day off was like pulling teeth. Yeah, I mean we got we were out here the, the day school ended. And we were here until the day before it started, and yeah. we didn't have much time. I mean, we we all had responsibilities, and we just because we were a Hibbard, we couldn't take a week off. Right, I couldn't take three days off. Right, you know, we were we, we had a job to do, and we had to do it just like everybody else. Not, and, that, and that's been a lifelong lesson. I yeah. mean, that that's something that that's really stuck with all of us to this day. And I think we we developed a, such a deep seated appreciation for for life, for lots of things. I it was mm-hmm. a great life's lesson. Mm-hmm. But also, I mean, we we just dug into this place, we did our jobs, we appreciated the crew, we appreciated learning how this all worked. We worked our way from the bottom up and and it, this this place just got it got under all of our skins. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just yeah, I mean, we just we absorbed it. Right. And it it just we became one with it
0: right yeah because it's big if it crashes great will be the fall of it and the only way to prevent that is for the people that are running it to know it top to bottom and the way to do that is to work it yep. yeah yeah cooper go ahead
2: well i think uncle chase you laid a very good foundation for our family's values and identity and a relationship to this place i mean it it comes from a um source that's overwhelming and personally for myself I knew exactly what I wanted to do and more than that what I had to do by the time I was 12 and also at that time as kind of a similar experience in in that once family friends or outsiders saw that I had the bug so to speak. And that this is what I was going to be doing. Mm -hmm. Quite a few people tried to dissuade me Hmm. because it would be a hard, there's nothing easy about it. Right. The future for ranching um, is dismal or I don't, I personally don't find it dismal, but if you're to look at facts and statistics and headlines and, Mm -hmm. um, trends can be doom and gloom pretty quick. Um, so a lot of people trying to dissuade me from that path, but there is no dissuading. Like Uncle Chase said, it just gets under your skin. <clears throat> and it was just something that I had to do. And I think the, the reason, I mean, you ask the question of, of why, why do it, you know, uh, money only goes so far, but meaning goes all the way and purpose goes all the way.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I'm of the personal opinion that meaning and purpose is something that's fairly absent from Western culture. And a lot of people are, are feel that. And I think there's a lot of different reasons for why that happens. And one reason, I think, is there is a, a serious disconnect between people and land. Mm-hmm. Uh, Like we, we need this connection on an innate biological level. And when people don't have that, it it can create an imbalance in their life. And maybe that's, that's what got under my skin was this connection to something that's so, so powerful and so much bigger than Mm -hmm. any one of us. The same realization that uncle Chase and my dad and my uncle Whit had when faced with the prospect of everyone telling them that they should sell this place and knowing that that's not the right thing to do. Um, And so for, for me, I mean, yeah, it's, it's not easy, but I feel like I've got the best job in the world. Yeah. And it's so rewarding. It can, it's so rewarding when you do it right. Mm -mm. And it can absolutely break you when you don't. And I've had, Uh, I get to cover both ends of that spectrum. Right. And so from a personal growth and development standpoint, you can't ask for a better teacher. The the meaning and purpose behind it for me is what, why I'm here. Like, I don't think that there's anything that could even begin to compare for myself Mm -hmm. that could offer anything of that magnitude and
0: depth. Yeah, earlier today, talking with Ashley, I mentioned uh, uh, the poem by Robert Frost. I think the title of the poem is "The Love That Lays the Swale and Rose," and I read it quoted in a book by Nicholas Carr. about the The book was called "The Glass Cage," and it's about the dangers of automation and uh, how there's quite a bit of human dignity that's lost when we when we shift all of our work into Automated systems, and he describes what Frost describes pretty eloquently, you know, the connection between people and land, you know, mediated through the manual labor that historically has been required to maintain uh, natural places. But he speaks really well to the to the need to have that sense of place mm-hmm. and connection to place, and that it I uh, very much is something that we need as 21st century Western Americans that are increasingly disconnected from uh, you know, from any of the natural things that sustain us, mm-hmm. including the people who raise the food that we eat, right? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I think I want to come back to succession and ranch succession and see what advice you all might have for others who are kind of in that boat. There's a lot of ranches that are in that place right now. Trying to decide whether to fold up or find some way to transfer it forward, uh, but I think I want to visit a bit about stewardship and then come back to the succession question. Uh, you know, stewardship I think is a, a buzzword, kind of like sustainability, that has probably lost some of its meaning for those of us that are that are in uh, the ranching cultural space. Uh, Nathan Sayer said that we shouldn't use the word sustainable unless we can identify exactly what we're concerned to sustain. Otherwise, we're just saying that whatever is now will continue to be. And that doesn't probably mean what we are saying when we think sustainability. So I'm curious, what does uh, stewardship, you know, good land management, um, husbandry in the older sense of the term, you know, the, the term that wasn't just referring to animal care what does stewardship mean to you and i'm asking because you have some you know some legal standing so to speak to to talk about that as a result of some environmental stewardship awards
1: yeah you pretty well summed it up (laughs) Um, yes i um i guess to me a discussion of sustainability ranch sustainability sustainability of Sieban livestock company um, includes perpetrating the place into the future the ownership of it that's that's one element of sustainability and then another element of sustainability would be economic. Sufficiency, um, which without that, none of the, neither none of the other legs are possible. I mean, we maybe view it as a three-legged stool. We've got economic sustainability. We've got uh, sustainability of uh, of the land and sustainability. of of the people and the way of life and they all fit together. Um, you got to have all three of them. Mm-hmm. And so um, we've got to have the people, we've got to have the commitment of the people. Um, we have to have the deep-seated love from the people. Um, we've got to have economic sufficiency or none of it's possible. And then We have then how you actually do your job on the ranch um, to maintain the soils, the natural systems, the, the livestock. And, you know, you can either mine these places or you can manage them in such a way that they will maintain themselves. Or you can manage them, them in such a way that they can improve themselves. And, um, I spend much of my time in the area of, mm-hmm. of the economic sustainability and more and more, and the, the, the people's sustainability, mm-hmm. um, not only, um, you know, with overseeing Cooper and his job, but also, um, trying to to organize the, the format for um, the next generation, you know, other members of Cooper's generation and the generation that, that follows. And then Cooper's done a remarkable job of bringing a real fresh approach to what we mean by sustainability of the dirt mm-hmm. and the cropping systems and the livestock. So um, it might be a good transition for him to talk yeah. a little bit about that and i'd be happy to go into any of those other legs of that that Stu was sure as i represent.
2: um well first off what stu- stewardship means to me i think well the <clears throat> it's it's an incredible responsibility to step into once you actually grasp what it is that you're responsible for it um, it will either you either step up to the plate and embrace it and it could be your own form of liberation or it can absolutely crush you and then there's a lot of people who don't understand the gravity and yeah. the magnitude of what of the responsibility that they take on once they step into any type of land management um, and And there's so many different layers and dimensions to what we're we're stewarding here, like what Uncle Chase was talking about with the the three legs, and and there's a few other legs branching off of those three legs, but all all of that we're responsible for. And um, as as I I view it, of what lately how I've been thinking about it, and if I could sum up what our responsibility is in one phrase, it'd be creating as much life as possible. That's, that's what we're here for from the soil up and putting as much the people involved are are well off. The animals involved are thriving and healthy and happy and feel safe in the great habitat for wildlife. Um, And just kind of a, There's a lot of moving parts to pull together and head into the same direction, but the cool thing about it is that everything, when you do pull everything together, they can all head in the same direction. And since we're working with mother nature and she's the most powerful force on the planet, once you know, and can understand how to harness and leverage that, that power, it's, it's like, just get out of the way, you know, um, and that's kind of what we're doing on the, on the sustainability end for the ranch operations that uncle Chase had alluded to with our grazing management practices and and what we're currently doing with grazing and with our farming and haying practices and irrigation practices, um, breeding practices with genetics. Uh, it all works in concert together. Um, and we've seen some really, really encouraging results with all of those. Um, mostly, most tremendous results have been with grazing management, and I, I think that that's probably because of turnaround time with that, at least how we've been doing it, is is mm-hmm. the feedback loop is much quicker than right. than the other two.
1: If I could come back at this point in the discussion to talking a little bit about people sustainability, which I. I kind of glossed over a bit ago, which is critical. I mean, and I'm, I guess I'm talking about uh, from a from a owner's perspective. Um, not always is our siblings on the same page about mm-hmm. what the future might be, and as the families get bigger, that gets to be a bigger a bigger and bigger problem. And uh, I'd just like to share what our experience has been there. I mean, we still have a fairly small, relatively small family group for as long as we've 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 owned this dirt. But um, we run a, a real traditional path that was designed by our uh, advisors years ago, which um, was designed to give the person or persons who demonstrated the interest the control and ultimately the ownership. And um, we completely did a turnabout. Um, about 30 years ago, which is the smartest thing we've ever done, because we were by heading down that concentration path, which is not uncommon in, in ranching, we were disenfranchising um, the rest of the family. And um, we could see that that was going gonna to lead to discord and it was not feeling right. And so, we, we got a whole new host of advisors, basically, mm. um, who um, helped with the concept of... And I mean, the phrase I, I recall is is that, you know, as soon as you start concentrating like that, you do disenfranchise others and all of the creativity and energy that they bring. Um, and so, we, we changed that structure and made... Everybody in the next generation equal owners of the ranch. We didn't concentrate at all. I mean, I've had primary responsibility for running this ranch for 40 years. And I don't own one one share more than anybody else. Mm -hmm. Um, So we, we, we embraced the concept of inclusiveness rather than exclusiveness and what it's done is it is it reinvigorated and energized all the family members that tended to be chopped off, and you know they, they are they are now interested in this ranch and they care just as much as Cooper and I care for the future of this ranch going on for generations. They're completely on board. I mean, there's just not mm. one bit of question about it. Have we not gone this route, there's a very good chance that we'd be getting pressure. To sell the ranch. I mean, right. family group has no interest in the ranch. They want their money. They want to get what's coming and, to and them. And this, yeah, and this has been the downfall of, of many, many operations. Right. So that's how we have dealt with that leg of, of sustainability. And I certainly have no no regrets. I think it was the right thing to do. And
2: I think what you guys did so well there with that process, um, and a lot of this came about, too, when we were discussing the conservation easement as a family of whether or not we should go forward with it at first it was a um more of discussing it as a tool for estate taxes basically when we're dealing Mm -hmm. with with um succession and how to how to transfer from one generation to the next and not incur an incredible amount of of death taxes right um and then it it kind of trend that conversation as a family as we came together and we really started to talk about what do we value um why are we doing this and that conversation through years uh, transformed into well, we need to do this primarily because we care about this place so much, and secondarily, a side benefit is that it's it will help with estate taxes. So it, it kind of mm-hmm. the, progressed into it, it pulled everyone together and, and created. Um, Wonderful way to to talk about in a safe way of what we cared about, each yeah. and every one of us, and to be heard, and that kind of started this um, I, for my generation. That was the catalyst for really creating this emotional attachment to this place, where what you're talking about, Uncle Chase, of how I, everyone cares about it, as much as you and I do. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys did that. that. That was so well done. And that's a, impacted me where when, when I'm asked about, well, what, what's the most important thing with succession planning for, for us and how I view it and what I would like to do with the next generation what I think is of utmost importance is instilling this emotional attachment in the, in the younger generation mm-hmm. to where it's just abs this place is absolutely sacred mm-hmm. and it's more important than anything else. Um, and <clears throat> there's no, there's no right way to do that and there's no easy way to do that. Uh, but I, that's when I'm looking back on, on my career, what would what I'll ju- judge myself whether or not I was successful in my job? Is it the end of my career? If I have something, if there's, if this place is viable, Exciting and special to pass on to the next generation. And so it's not only uh, f- financially do, do we have a, a, a healthy, robust ranch, mm-hmm. but something that is exciting for people to be involved in and to just have this really deep emotional attachment to. And the groundwork is you guys did such a good job, I think, in laying that foundation and and inviting everyone. As you said, there was a real turnaround. That probably happened when I was in middle school. Yeah. I think when we did that, mm-hmm. it was a total about face in the and, and in the feeling of us as a family when we came together and we're trying to figure out what's the best way forward to navigate towards
1: the next generation.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, and there, yeah, as you said
1: absolutely no regrets. Yep. And your generation is completely bought in and now members of your generation are working on their own kids. Yep. That's right. (laughs) So it would, you know, speculating had we, had we gone the concentration route and disenfranchised these family groups, there wouldn't be that synergy that's Mm -hmm. developed. And so it's kind of grown on each other. And I'm amazed at my kids that are, they're all, they're all in Missoula. They're, on the other side of the divide, it's in a completely different world. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, they're, they're, you know, they don't spend that many days a year here, but they're all in. Mm-hmm. This place is, you know, this place is sacred.
0: Yeah, that, that motivation is interesting. We're, we're prone to think that humans are thinking things, but I've read a number of, um, books that have convinced me that we're we're probably more lovers than we are thinking things. There's a famous quote from uh, the book, Little Prince, mm-hmm. where the author says, if you want to teach people to um, build a ship, you don't assign tasks and show them how to drum up materials. You, uh, you teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. And mm-hmm. if they have that, then... If they're motivated by a love of the sea, getting them to build a boat is not an obstacle. <laughs> they will find a way to build a boat because right. they want to go explore go to the sea. sea. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah that's good. good. Good analogy. Good
0: analogy. Yeah, we've we've run some succession planning courses for you know, any any land-based business, you know, crop farms, ranches, um, family forests using the Ties to the Land curriculum that I think was a partnership between Oregon State University and the Austin School of Business. And it's really a way to get families to talk about the family business and what's going to happen when, you know, grandpa and grandma die. And of course, there's, as you well know, there are lots of situations where you've got, you know, an 85-year-old man who's still calling all of the shots and none of the potential heirs have any idea What's going to happen to the place when he's gone, you know, which is a financial disaster waiting to happen. It's a family relations disaster waiting to happen. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. But one of the, one of the uh, exercises in that curriculum is to have people line themselves up on a wall on what they call the heirloom scale. You know, where on one end you have people who feel that uh, the family property whatever it might be, is priceless and shouldn't be sold, you know, for any reason uh, that it makes no difference whether it makes any money. It, it's like an heirloom. On the, other, on the other end of the scale are the, you know, full-on pragmatists who say if it can't turn a profit, then, you know, we should just chase down the highest and best economic use, sell it, split it up, you know, let's, let's move on. And interestingly, oftentimes the ranch operators are the ones who are right in the middle because they recognize it's not, it's not uh, feasible in the real world to just sit on it and do nothing with it if it doesn't make any money. At a minimum, somebody's got to pay the taxes and eventually, you know, there won't be, you know, some rich benefactor who can just keep paying the taxes on the land. Uh, but they also recognize that there's something more there than just the potential, you know, production of, of a piece of ground and uh, the ranch operators are often the ones in the middle and the, the possible heirs are out toward the edges, you know, for various reasons, either they need money or, you know, they have an emotional attachment to that place, even though they've never had to work it and don't depend on it for income. Uh, that's, that's really, I think that's fascinating. I was going to ask where you would place yourselves on the heirloom scale uh, that I, I have some idea, but I think it's still a good question. <laughs> you know, you've spoken to the, the absolute necessity of having a strong emotional attachment to the land mm-hmm. uh, because otherwise it's easy to just give up at the same time. It's got to make some money. Um, yeah. Where would you put yourself on that heirloom scale? Maybe you, Cooper. First.
2: Um, well, if I had my operations manager hat on, it would be <laughs> right. right in the middle. Right. Um, and for two reasons, the obvious reason of that, I'm not doing my job unless if this place is turning a profit, but also right in the middle, because instead of more, more on the um, profit driven into the spectrum, also in the middle, because I, I'm coming at this with an angle of, of there's kind of a, a new model of, of ranching that we need to discover here. and. We're fortunate enough here at Seaborn Livestock to where we're in good enough footing from Uncle Chase's management to where we can experiment for this new route forward because we we have to in order to get it to that sixth generation we've got to find and so there's some that being said there's some there there's some uh, wiggle room or flexibility there for if in say there's a year that we Don't turn a profit, it's not like oh geez, we need to turn around and sell the business mm-hmm. or re- revert back to what we were doing 10 or 15 years ago. It's like, no, let's keep moving forward and learn from our mistakes. And because we do feel like we're there's the interest and um investment into getting these cornerstones put into place and the foundation built for this new model, and, and I feel like they're in place now, thankfully. So that's the operations manager hat. The family hat would be um, definitely on, more on the uh, special attachment, sacred end of the mm-hmm. Of the spectrum, but at the same time, it can't be subsidized by, right. by any family members. Like it has to hold its own. Otherwise right. the, the, that's when the real world comes in. it's like, you got to start talking about other options. Right.
0: Especially when it's large. So if there's 40 acres.
2: Yeah. You know,
0: somebody with a job in town can pay the taxes and we'll just sit on it, but you can't right. do that if it's a hundred thousand acres.
2: So I'd say it's a pragmatic, yeah. on the pragmatic end of the, um. What
1: what was the title that you the used heirloom for
0: that, scale
2: the heirloom scale
0: yeah 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 and you chase great discussion
1: I <laughs> okay I am I'm I'm, I'm going to say I'm 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 on the I'm more on the the money and the self sufficiency end of that scale but only because going back to the story I told you about when it was Fisher cut bait time 44 years ago or whatever it was, um, it became, I mean, the, 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 the emotional attachment and when all three of us would have chopped off an arm, I mean, mm-hmm. so it was there, it was so deep. We didn't even have to question it, but all of a sudden, bam, the, your, the, the mentor, the the lifelong manager, the fa- our father is gone like that, bang, you know. One minute he's alive, next minute he's not. Yeah, at age fifty six.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. So okay, so here we have this thing. We love it. What do we have to do so that we can continue to love it? What do we have to do so we can have this ranch? well it was so obvious to me and of course i was coming from a financial background that unless we get this place on firmer financial footing we are not even going to have this luxury of thinking about it
0: right it'll blow up whether you want and
1: so my first 10 years were well more than that 10 years plus probably first 15 to 20 years you know i took this more for granted I, 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 I took the emotional part more for granted. It was there. I mean, believe me, it was there. But my my energy went to building the financial side. Yeah. And now 40 years later, the financial side is, 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 built, is built strongly. But so I, I guess my, pro, my approach was pragmatic, you know, but I couldn't have done that. Left, left a career and a California bride who was right. never, never really at home here. Yeah. Um, you know, so that foundation was there and was strong, but I, I, I had to day to day and in my head, I had to get, right. you know, every single day was on the on the on the financial and and, and business side of it. Yeah. And now that's that. That it's there. It's it's hard to get over that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's that it's... triangle
0: again, like the three-legged <laughs> stool. You wouldn't have been motivated to give up everything to try to make it financially stable. Yeah. If, yep. if there yep. was no yep. attachment.
1: So I yeah. think the answer here is is that yeah, you got to view it like that stool, yeah. and they, all the pieces have to fit. You yeah. know, you can't if you go too far one way or the other, the thing's going to fall down. Yeah.
0: The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement.